Well, hello and welcome to another episode of the New Ground Life and Leadership Podcast, here to help you thrive as a follower of Jesus wherever you are and in whatever you're going through. I'm your host, Jez Field, and thanks for joining us for another episode. Now, already in this podcast, we've tried to tackle some big issues head on and had some fascinating conversations with thinkers and leaders on a whole range of different topics. I hope you've enjoyed them and have benefited from them. Please do share it wherever you can on your socials. Don't forget to hit that like and subscribe button and get in touch with me about anything you'd like to encourage or help shape what we're doing here with our conversations. You can get hold of me by emailing podcast at newgroundchurches.org. Now, I'm really pleased to bring you a conversation I had a couple of months ago now with Paula Hall. Paula is an accredited sexual and relationship psychotherapist. And for the past 15 years, she has specialized in helping people affected by and struggling with porn and sex addiction get free from those things. She's also the founder of the Laurel Center, which is a specialist organization that provides help for people who struggle with sexual behavioral disorders. And her 2016 TED Talk has now had over 300,000 views. We had a really interesting conversation about sex addiction, porn addiction, and the effect of the pandemic on those things, within which she shares some really helpful advice on how to get free from addiction more generally. Paula is also an author, and I'd really want to encourage you to get hold of her book, Confronting Porn which offers a comprehensive guide for Christians struggling with porn and churches that want to help them. So whether this is an issue that affects you directly, it certainly affects people in your church. This is a really helpful introduction level book that brings together much of the the neuroscience and psychotherapy behind addiction uh, whilst putting that alongside a Christian perspective. Well, I'll hand over the conversation now, which I hope you will find helpful. And don't forget to stick around till the end where you get a, a teaser trailer of the next episode that's coming up in a couple of weeks' time, where I'm going to be having a conversation with author and speaker David Bennett, who prior to becoming a Christian was an atheist gay activist. So quite a story and transformation there. But for now, here's Paula. Enjoy. Well, Paula, why don't we kick things off by um, you, I suppose, outlining for us either how you how you got into the work that you're doing, or more specifically, I suppose, what what is the work that you're doing, and uh, and how much of a problem is it for people? Um, so I've been a therapist for nearly thirty years now, and started specialising in sex addiction. It's probably about eighteen years ago now. Um, and I was working in private practice. I worked for Relate, and it was one of those situations where it sort of came on the radar and just resonated with a couple of clients that I was working with and decided to specialise. Um, and I, I, just, I just had a sense, was that God? I don't know. I had a sense that this was an area that was going to grow. And this, this is you know, going back 18 years. We didn't have smartphones, believe it or not. I know. Who can imagine life without it? When we were free. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it was quite a different world there. But I still had a sense that this was going to be something that was likely to be a growing mm. problem. Um, and, and and I was interested in it. I've always been interested in technology and human sexuality. So I was a sex therapist. Um, so I decided to specialise and... Um, well, it went 
yeah, it went from me in private practice to, you know, a team of 20 of us. We're a training organisation as well. And um, business is booming, particularly since lockdown. Uh, mm. I mean, we've had, our inquiries have increased by 50%. So we've had real significant rise in our inquiries and mm. struggled to keep up. We had a waiting list for the first time ever since we opened our doors. Um, it's, yeah, it is a massively growing problem. And of course, the the internet, um, Apple, thank you very much, um, have been kind of at the, the, the start of this business. They've made sexuality so much more accessible than it has ever been at mm. any other time in history. And of course, in some respects, many couples who may be separated by by miles now um that that's that's a great benefit that's that's a wonderful gift but mm. uh, you know i think with all gifts come challenges mm. and um i don't think we have the education yet that we need to have about the potential risks of being online we're, we're gaining more understanding around it in terms of gambling and gaming and that happens but still have the problems with it mm. but i think we're still a long way off really recognizing this as a uh, a real issue um when it comes to pornography and sexual behaviors yeah i think uh, in one of your books you describe it as an oncoming tsunami and i've heard you elsewhere call it an epidemic of its own um you know we're we're all obsessed with the the current you know virus epidemic but there are epidemics like this that are silently destroying relationships and lives all around the country and because there's so little teaching about it and because there's so much shame around it people don't talk about it and so it, it gets worse in what in your in your ted talk you you quote some stats that there are 68 million uh, search engine um, searches for porn a day and 25 percent of all search terms are looking for pornography um that's huge isn't it <laughs> I, and i think it's gone up since then yeah absolutely oh and when we went into the first lockdown in March, Pornhub, so which is one of the largest providers of pornography in the world, decided to give special discounts for people in lockdown to help them cope. No, I mean, gosh, it, can you imagine somebody doing that with tobacco or somebody doing that? that we were the society oh, would just. Oh my goodness! Why? Why is that acceptable? Um, so let's 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 talk about it. I guess what is what is porn addiction, and uh, and how much of a problem is it? Obviously, it's a it's a common thing, but how much of a problem is, does it affect lives? It, it, so actually, getting um, reliable statistics on the percentage of people struggling with sex and porn addiction is is really difficult. Um, for for most people, it starts with pornography, and um, if you're a regular viewer, then you know that you know, the vast majority of it is free nowadays. But the way they make their money is through the adverts, the adverts to the paid for services, and some of that is more hardcore porn. Some of it will be sex worker sites, adult sites, hookups, chat, webcam, that kind of thing, um, and that's where it then kind of escalates from pornography to being more person to person, and then off and offline meetings to sex addiction. Um, there are, of course, many, many millions of people who engage in these activities um, who don't become addicted to it. So, you know, regardless of how you feel about the morality of this, um, it doesn't mean that anybody that's engaging in this is addicted in the same way as, you know, if we were a faith that generally was anti-alcohol, that wouldn't mean that anybody you had a glass of wine with their Sunday lunch must automatically be an alcoholic. It's that's just, you know, 
be ludicrous. Um, so there are plenty of people who do engage in it recreationally without it becoming compulsive. Um, but there are people for, for whom that's not the case. And um, the thing really that's made it, and I said this earlier really, but that's made it explode in the way it has, has simply been opportunity. Uh, I mean, pornography has been around since um, since cave times. I mean, literally, there are pornographic images carved into caves from sort of prehistoric man. So, I mean, there, there has always been some form of pornography or erotica or whatever you might have called it mm. back then. Um, but when it was paper porn, you couldn't turn the pages fast enough to really become addicted in the same way. And also, you would have had so many um, inhibitors. You had to go into a shop. You had to exchange money. You had to take it to, to the cashier. And, you know, if you were going to visit a sex worker, you had to kind of find the number. You had to make an appointment, mm. for goodness sake. You had to, you know, there were so many hurdles to cross that even if that was a in a fantasy in your your mind you probably would never go ahead of, with it but now it is just so easy so easy to do um so that increased availability um in a way that's that's you know quite anonymous has meant that a lot of the inhibitors have gone um and and i think also you know so that that means means it's just accelerated hugely and some people are more vulnerable mm. than others so certainly people who may have have other kind of issues in their past other things that have caused problems in relationships they may be more um more prone to this but yeah we still don't have statistics mm -hmm. not really not reliable statistics mm -hmm. um, how does someone become addicted um you know you said pay paper porn uh, you can access it fast enough what goes on in a person's brain just help us understand some of the the neuroscience behind addiction and why it becomes something that's so hard for people to break free from so the common denominator in all addictions is a chemical called dopamine and dopamine is, is absolutely essential neurochemical. And it's one that um, makes us get out of bed in the morning. It's the one that motivates us to seek rewards. So it's not actually a pleasure chemical in itself, but it motivates us to seek out those chemicals. So basically, it's, it, it's what motivates us to eat food. It's what motivates us to have sex. And you know, God created sex so that we could repopulate and bond with other human beings and so on and so forth. Um, so it, it's, it's all, it, it's a motivator. The problem can be when you've got too much of it, you're, you're kind of over motivated, as it were. So someone, if you use a food metaphor, someone who's kind of chronically obese probably has way too much dopamine flowing, and which means one biscuit isn't enough, two isn't enough, five isn't enough. They don't get the same level of satiation. It just escalates more, 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 more. Um, so... Yeah, dopamine is the is the common denominator. The other thing we know is that what happens when somebody is flooding their brain with um, dopamine, it begins to damage the um, the kind of common sense part of your brain, the kind of grey matter in the frontal cortex. So it makes it harder to actually rationalise, to actually think about what the consequences might be. So you know, when people say, "Oh, I don't understand addicts," you know, don't they think? Don't they think about what could happen, the consequences? Well, no, is, is the short answer to that. Often they don't because that part of the brain begins to close down the more you pump dopamine. Oh, wow. um, but also what we know is the more dopamine you produce, the more you need to get the same effect. So actually it has, a, has the effect of actually numbing 
other kind of pleasure centers in the brain. So somebody who becomes addicted to something genuinely begins to find less pleasure in other areas of life. The rest of life becomes boring. It pales into insignificance. So, you know, whether it's um, illegal drugs, whether it's alcohol, whether it's gambling, whether it's pornography, it begins to become the most important thing in their life. Nothing else quite fulfills them in the same way. And that's not just psychological, that's biological. And I think understanding the neuroscience behind addiction is really important because it can help us to understand that this is not a moral issue. Of course, there are moral implications. We can't deny Mm. that, but it's not purely a moral issue. This is a physical as well as a mental health. And so, I mean, as Christians, we're we're aware of the concept that sin enslaves. And um, it's clear that sin doesn't just enslave in the sense that... um, you become trapped to something, but your your biology changes. There's something about the way you're you're built that uh, means that you're constantly returning to the source of the thing that's killing you or doing you damage that you want to get free from. How do you repair that damage? Then, once someone's neuropathways become set, that they require so much more dopamine to get them through the day, or they become distracted, constantly thinking about acting out, um, visiting that website. What are some of the ways that you help people get free from that? I mean, the, the great thing is that we, we, we can break free and those neural pathways can change. We used to think they couldn't. Years ago, we used to think that once you developed a neural pathway, that was it. It was set in stone. Um, but actually, that's that's simply not the case. And just to be clear, we all create neural pathways all the same. So my, my neural pathway to using Zoom was pretty rubbish a year ago. I would have been faffing around for ages, Jez, trying to find the right buttons. She probably would have had to telephone me and talk me through how to use all this terrible technology. Um, now I can run groups on Zoom. I can do breakout rooms. I can do all sorts of things because that neural pathway has got stronger and stronger and stronger because I've practiced. And basically developing an addiction is about practicing. The more and more you repeat a behavior, the stronger the neural pathway becomes. So those out there who are excellent musicians, people who can read their Bible back to front, quote all those verses, know chapter, verse, chapter, verse, admire them so much. That comes from practice. That's how they do it. They've developed that neural pathway. If you stop practicing your musical instrument, if you stop reading your Bible, you're gradually going to forget and that neural pathway will begin to kind of rust over. Um, so it's only by repeating behaviours that we maintain them. So really, that you know, the, the principle basically of recovering from addiction is to stop doing it. Um, and once you stop doing it, and at first that's really, really difficult because the cravings will be so powerful and dopamine creates craving. Um, But after a while, that neural pathway will begin to become more and more rusty. You forget, basically, and it becomes easier and easier to live without it. Mm. Um, And the other thing you can do to ensure that happens as quickly as possible is to take up other things. Yeah, so if you want to uh, you go back to my Zoom metaphor, somebody asked if they could Skype me the other day. Do you remember Skype? <laughs> and I was like, oh, my, I'd forgotten my password. I'd forgotten how to send an invitation. One of the best ways to forget Skype is to use Zoom, is to use <laughs> something else. So basically, if you, you know, if you want to make a pathway um, and sort of get rusty really quickly, take up a whole load of other activities because then it's much easier to forget but there's something about temptation and sin and pleasure attachments that 
although it, it's, it's obviously it's very hard to stop those things because of the cravings but there's always going to be an element of forbidden fruit that you you actually you d deep down you really desire it again so how do you change your desires so that it's not just i can close down the neural pathway so i forget about it but that neural pathway can fan back into flame it seems absolutely very quickly that's... so how do you change desires I don't know if I'm going to be controversial here. I don't think there's a moral judgment over a desire. I think God created us to be attracted to other human beings. I think it is one of his great gifts to be able to look at another human being and go, wow. Um, and sometimes that comes with a, a little flurry and fluster of wow and ooh, at the same time. Um, but then we use the thinking you know and that's a limbic system thing that's how we were created but then we engage the thinking part of our brain and we go i'm married <laughs> oh thank you for that great gift lord of that wonderful human being i hope they're very happy in life move on because <laughs> it's not mine mm. it's not mine it's someone else's and god bless them mm. it's somebody else's but i think to have that initial awareness is okay and i think this is the difference between um sort of noticing something desiring something and lusting mm -hmm. so the, the bible's very clear that lusting is not okay but lusting is different from looking so i think you know often they say this in the 12-step groups look don't lust and another wonderful expression that comes from the 12 steps or that's certainly where i heard it was the first looks on god so you notice someone beautiful that look that noticing that's god's gift mm -hmm. to you after that first look you're on your own time that wasn't from him. If you're still looking, if you're looking a second time, third time, fourth time, you've gone way beyond what was the, the gift. Um, and I, I suppose, again, using a food metaphor, we have so many amazing, beautiful things that we can eat, but we can't eat all of them. We were told there were some things not to mm. eat. Um, that doesn't mean we won't want to. Mm. So I think, you know, being tempted is not a sin giving in to temptation is mm. so acknowledging you have that desire is okay but then that's where it ends mm. you don't do anything with it mm. the uh, i mean classic the fruit of the spirit is a fruit of the spirit is self-control of course yeah. um and from what you said though when you're addicted that common sense part of your brain shuts down to the point that you you don't appear to have much self-control and rationality when it comes to to resisting the temptation um as you as you say no to that temptation does that did you say that common sense part of your brain switches back into gear again yes okay yes yeah yeah so as the dopamine is reducing so the other bit starts kind of coming more online okay. again so yeah absolutely so quite often somebody getting into recovery initially i mean the, the, the you, identify your triggers avoid them if you possibly can so in early recovery you are not going to spend long periods of time on your phone you're going to do everything you can to shut down all of your technology so that you can't access pornography so you're going to get porn blockers and trackers and goodness knows what else minimize the time it's hard in lockdown i know but try and minimize the time when you're on devices mm. um, you get away from the stimuli as fast as possible it's you know the first few weeks are difficult 
but after that it begins to get easier and easier and easier but that's why some of the the kind of mechanisms for relapse prevention may seem kind of quite quite difficult and extreme in the early days mm -hmm. but that's because you <laughs> yes you, you can't rely on common sense quite so much no i think in your in your book here you you use the acronym run r-u-n for um, remove yourself from the situation undistort your thinking and n never forget what you have to lose so i guess what you're talking about there is the r removing yourself from the situation that there is a there is an element of cold turkey if you really want to be free from something you've got to go through the hard work of like you say um accountability partners and blockers to help you stop using the the thing that's causing you the problems which for a lot of people is is a very it's a huge hurdle to get over because anyone who's ever tried dieting knows that you know you go through that cycle of i'll never eat food again and then suddenly like i'm hungry i want food <laughs> so I'll, I'll eat what i you know we return to the source of our own destruction time and time again what are some of your advice then on how to help people stick to the decision they make when they're in their period of um shame um, and i'll never do that again you talk about the the cycle of addiction before as well yeah absolutely so in the book we talk about the cycle of addiction which is kind of recognizing that there are triggers um, and triggers typically are either emotional or environmental so the environmental yeah don't buy the biscuits in the first place don't put the cake in the fridge and be surprised when you open the fridge that you're tempted to have a piece of cake um, so do whatever you can to avoid those environmental triggers. And if you can't avoid them, run. So someone offers you a piece of cake, run out of the house. It might be a bit rude, but you know what, you know what I mean. Um, but there's emotional triggers as well and identify what those emotional triggers are. And that may be, uh, it may be feeling angry. It may be loneliness. It may be frustration. It may be low self-esteem. So try and identify what those um, emotional triggers may be. And it may be that you, you kind of need to do some deeper work on, on resolving some of those triggers. Why is it that you struggle with loneliness mm. so much? Why is it that it's difficult to control your temper? What is this low self-esteem mm. about? So that's where kind of sometimes one-to-one -one therapy and doing some deeper work is, is kind of involved. Mm. Um, if you can, Know, try try and avoid those those feelings and emotions by kind of going deeper and resolving them but you know we're human beings we feel lonely sometimes mm. we're going to be rejected sometimes it's it's part of being a human being and we live in a world that's going to make us angry mm. sometimes so that you know it's part of being human so learning to manage those emotions in a healthy way finding healthy ways to self-soothe so when i'm feeling lonely when i'm having a difficult day how can i look after myself in a way that um yeah, it's healthy and appropriate and um is yeah is 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 you know what would jesus do all that kind of, you know how, how he must have had some seriously tough days yeah. seriously tough days did he have a bath with rose petals i don't know i'm not sure you could in those days but yeah you know how do i do this in a really healthy way that kind of honors, yeah. honors god um the other part in the cycle is really recognizing cognitive distortions what are those things you tell yourself that let yourself off the hook? And we're, we're all guilty of doing this, of having cognitive distortions. Um, what is it that you say that makes it okay? And I think, you know, classic ones are, well, everybody does this, or it's not my fault. I can't help it. Only five minutes. Well, it's their fault that I'm doing this. If it wasn't for them, I wouldn't have to do it. And you've got to identify those messages as well. And 
rewrite the script. How do you recognise them as distortions? Because they don't feel like distortions. They feel like valid justification for your behaviour. Part of that is taking the time. Part of that is just being able to step back and go, mm, and what else? I, as Christians, obviously, prayer is going to be absolutely critical here. God, oh gosh, there is a really old-fashioned about it as soon as we get offline but it is something about you know be aware of my thinking mm. oh, I can't remember what it is now um but that, that 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 is really really important but it's it's where group work's really important so it's one of the things I love about doing group work is where kind of somebody will say yes but I always think da 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 and then other people go yeah that's rubbish isn't it hey? <laughs> Yeah, no, I used to lie like that to myself as well. Mm. I used to say that and kind of calling each other out on it and being like, yeah, it's not true. But I think we mm. know. Yeah. Um, I, I I can't remember if I did this when I when I saw you and I was speaking at the conference, but um, one of the examples I often give when I'm kind of talking about this in public is I'll ask people if they've ever broken the speed limit. So I wonder if listeners now can think, now, have you ever broken the speed limit? And um, I suspect if you're saying no right now, you probably don't drive <laughs> because actually I have yet to meet another human being who hasn't broken the speed limit. Um, if you then say, so, you know, why? Why did you break the speed limit? Was it because you think, do you think speed limits are stupid? No, we all think they're sensible, but well, it's you know, because I was late. So I had an excuse. It's because somebody else made me late. So we blame somebody. Um, it's because you think, well, I'm, I'm entitled because I'm a particularly good driver. I'm a very, very good. I was doing it safely. Well, everybody speeds on the motorway. Nobody goes 70. Everybody speeds. So and we know we're doing it. We know when we're telling ourselves those lies. So it's this is not it's not an uncommon experience. We do it all the time. And it's just becoming consciously aware of it, which is... Yeah. Uh, friends of mine that who are in recovery from alcohol and drugs tell me that they needed to reach rock bottom um, until they were finally ready to actually make some reparations and some major life changes. Um, how do you help people who are addicted to porn or use porn a lot to reach a point of genuinely wanting to change? Like, if... It, uh, yeah how do you how do you is there a way that you can bring someone to not rock bottom but as christians we've often been guilty of using a guilt stick or a shame stick and creating yeah. cultures where sins of shame and secrecy can thrive so what advice would you be just to help someone move from it's a struggle i have to i must get free from this and stop it i so i i don't agree that you have to hit rock bottom there are a lot of people who have hit rock bottom and that's why they get help and they talk about that but there are an awful lot of people out there who thought they hit rock bottom until they hit mm. another one and then realize oh my goodness that wasn't the bottom how much further can i go i mean that that's that's pretty scary um i i you know really the key for recovery is motivation i, I often get asked as i'm sure you can imagine how successful are your programs you know well, will, will this work unfortunately we're not funded we are a paid for service so you know before i spend my money how you know can you guarantee it will work and to be honest you know i can very happily say if you're motivated enough i guarantee it will work you bring the motivation i'll bring the tools but motivation really is the key. And sometimes some people have to hit rock bottom before they get that motivation, but not everybody. And I think you can help people by 
asking them what rock bottom might look like. So if somebody says, oh yeah, I know I've got a bit of a problem. It's asking very simply, so you know, how would you know when it had gone too far? How would you know when you needed to get help? So it sounds as though it doesn't seem that bad yet. So how would you know when it is? And kind of encouraging them to use imagination. And then quite often what happens is either it naturally clicks, do I really want to get there? So I remember a client who he was married, he had three children, he was continuing to dabble with pornography and visiting um, massage parlors and it was nowhere near as bad as it used to be and that of course was the cognitive distortion but well, it's not as bad as I used to do it's a lot better than it was and that's quite a powerful distortion it's a lot better than it was um, and this was going on for quite some time and I asked him you know what, what what would rock bottom look like and and I really kind of pushed him to go and by saying and then so my wife would find out again and then what would happen well, she'd be really angry. And then what would happen? And then what would happen? And after not not very long at all, he was in tears when he was, I'd be selling the house. I'd see my children only at weekends. I would, and so do you want to wait till then? No. No, I do not want to wait mm. till then. So it's helping people to see before yeah, they get And that's there. the N in the RUN acronym, I guess, never forget what you have to lose. Um, yeah. I think... It's interesting when talking to often it's young as a youth as a former youth pastor it's young men and teenagers who are dabbling in pornography in the early stages of addiction and in parts because they've got you know massive hormonal changes going on internally that are finding some release and outlet externally in yeah. porn use um but there's also because of the, the culture that we're in the widespread expectation that this is entirely normal and acceptable and appropriate you know release of testosterone or whatever um for them i found often as a youth pastor the challenge is trying to convince them god can be trusted and the life of purity is actually more enjoyable and satisfaction satisfying and pleasurable than a life of you know dabbling in things lusts of the flesh or sin, things that you know won't bring you lasting fruit and lasting joy um how yeah that it doesn't always have the same power perhaps that it used to in a in a different society where we used to just be able to say the bible says and people would say oh okay now we seem to have to almost convince people god's word is good and god can be trusted um what are some i think you cover it in the first chapter of your book or so some some advice on you know beautiful flourishing sexuality and what that looks like and why that's good and why that's desirable in the first place what are some things that you'd say to to just paint some of that picture for people as to why they should avoid dabbling in porn at the early stages uh, and instead learn to to pursue a life of purity and holiness i think i think it's difficult we <laughs> I mean, we, we know that generally the age of kind of puberty is getting younger and younger, and that's because our diets are so good. You know, it's kind of a good thing. Um, but generally, the age of marriage is getting later and later. I mean, in Bible times, they'd probably be married at 50. They'd be dead by 40s. So they need to get married earlier. It's So, we, you know, we are asking young people or expecting young people to wait way beyond what would have been expected in Bible times. And I think that we need to be we need to be aware of that um i think you know people have different ideas and different definitions of what purity is 
So I think there's a huge question here over, and I know it, I'm going to be really frankly, you know, it's not appropriate, but you know, each Christian needs to make a decision for themselves as to whether or not they believe masturbation is okay or not as a single person. If it can be done without lust and without pornography, the Bible is very, very clear that lusting after another human being is okay. Um, I don't see how on earth you can watch pornography without it being lusting. Therefore, I don't see how you can justify that. Um, I personally am not sure that that's the same thing necessarily as enjoying your own body purely through touch. I think that's a perfectly kind of human thing. And I, I don't personally see that that's necessarily against God's will. Um, but lust most certainly is, it has to be without lust. So I think, you know, young people have to find the path that is going to be okay for them and fits with basically their interpretation of Christian mm. values. And I think that that is something that, of course, challenges the church and has done forever. We go back a few centuries on what um, some of the, the sort of church values would have been. They're very, very different from how they are now. So, you know, being a woman, <laughs> and we've just got a new female vicar. Yay. Um, I think we all would have been taken out and hung if we'd had a, attempted to have a female vicar however many years ago, you know, a century ago. So things have really, really changed. Um, I think... Yeah, it's an interesting observation because I think culturally our conscience changes, doesn't it? And what yes. was acceptable, um, an acceptable f or an expected form of sexual purity 100 years ago, we now don't have the same norms. And so there, like you said there's clear scriptural boundaries where it comes to lust, but the cultural application and or the conscience of the individual within the culture will apply and appropriate that differently, um, which is perhaps why we're with with we're called as Christians to walk in step with the spirit, not the law. We're actually supposed to listen to our consciences as the Holy Spirit renews us and transforms and sanctifies our conscience. Yeah, completely um, agree. Completely agree. Yeah. So I suppose I hear what you're saying. I think there is all kinds of we what we want often as pastors or as parents of teens. We want law to be able to tell them, don't ever do this. Stay away from that. Whereas actually those laws that we may have applied for ourselves can easily become a legalism for someone else. And I may impose a law on myself because of my own tendencies and my own weaknesses. I know for me, for example, I cannot watch that TV show, but a friend could and it wouldn't cause them yes. the same problems. Um, and that's that's perhaps where the, the need for wisdom and um, maturity in the conversation on how to help people walk free from this is perhaps there as well. Yeah. And grace. That's really helpful. I, I want to come back to something you've touched on and something I found really helpful from your work is the different types of addiction. There is, of course, opportunity induced addiction, um, which as a result of the smartphones, you'd expect a lot more people to become addicted because the opportunity is there. But what I personally found hugely releasing and uh, I think change, has changed my marriage was the insight that there's an attachment based addiction as well. That what I'm looking for when I want sex isn't just physical. It's actually I want to feel loved. You know, when I talk to men in the church who are in difficult marriages and they're dissatisfied with their sex life, they acknowledge it's not really the sex that they want. When they talk about, I know, I, could I just go and visit a prostitute, they say. And, I, and my, often I, my 
my reply is, but that won't give you what you want because what you want is to feel loved. And, if, you know, 10 minutes later, you're going to still have that same ache and you'll have added to it guilt because you have the spirit of God in you and you know that that's wrong. Talk to us about attachment disorders and attachment addictions. So attachment is kind of the, it's the, it's the psycho word for kind of our need to feel secure and need to have a secure base. So, so basically, um, I, you know, ideally when a child is growing up, they are going to feel safe. They're going to feel loved. They're going to feel that their needs are going to be met. Their basic needs are going to be met. There's going to be boundaries, but they're always going to be lovingly imposed. So, you know, ideally a child grows up learning to develop their own identity, to explore the world, to, to become themselves, to become who they are. And it's done with a safe, containing and affirming way. If that's not provided, then what can happen often is that we grow up into people that are quite needy. We grow up needing other people's validation and other people's affirmation. Or we could, the kind of opposite of that is that we grow up being people who feel that we just don't need others. I can do it all on my own. I can do it by myself. I rely on nobody. But we also grow up people who, in times of need, fear that we won't actually get what we want from other people. Particularly if your child has been abusive, then you may have grown up with a message that actually you shouldn't or can't turn to people in times of need because they won't be there to support you. And therefore it becomes easier to rely on things than people, to rely on substances, to rely on behaviours for comfort rather than people. Because frankly, it never lets you down. That is the reality. Um, so yeah, somebody with an attachment disorder is likely to be somebody who struggles to get their needs met from other human beings but of course exactly as you say you know partners relationships can be difficult there may be times when you're not getting those needs met but hopefully you can find other ways of doing it and I do think we you know whilst I'm a great fan of marriage my husband can be very pleased to hear great fan of marriage <laughs> I, don't, I don't think you can assume that your partner can meet all of your emotional needs or indeed all of your physical needs. They're, they're, they're human beings themselves. They have their own needs. That Not everything can come from one human being. And I think we're, we're born in community. And I don't think uh, that in, in the West particularly, we are very good at community. And I know we, all churches are different, of course, and churches can be great places for community. But when it's sort of the more emotional needs, sometimes those it's difficult to get those met even within, within churches. So if a partner's not available emotionally or physically in some way, ideally we find ways of reaching out for others or self-soothing ourselves or turning to God, of course. Mm. Um, but if we had attachment issues in childhood, that may be harder to do. And yeah, absolutely, reaching out to pornography or another human being is often the alternative. Um, and something I just want to pick up, obviously, as a manager, you're working primarily with men in this, I'm sure. But this is not a problem that is only affecting men. And we often think about, you know, when we're talking about sex and porn addiction, we think about men. And certainly there seems to be more men that struggle with it than women. But this is affecting women as well and Christian women. And women can get very hooked on if they're not getting the support, the love, the affection, the validation, the attention from, from their husband, then they may turn to getting it from other men. Mm. And, you know, a nod, a wink, a nudge, a smile, you may get that affirmation in, 
in buckets mm. um, and it be- can become very very tempting for women to turn to that mm. yeah I think you well. said um, in your talk that 30% of porn addicts or sex addicts are women that that seems to be the statistic but they often do not come forward for help right they do not come forward for help and I I, I, I think this is something where church are actually is, are often letting women down at the moment that I'm, I'm absolutely delighted that you know, pornography particularly is talked about a lot more now in, you know, in kind of young men's groups and in, in men's groups, but it's often not talked about in women. Mm, it's interesting. I think in, in the wider culture, there's been um, an embracing and accepting of women's sexuality, but there doesn't seem to have been an understanding or willingness to talk about female sexuality in the church in quite the same way that there is in the culture. And obviously the culture is talking about it detached from a biblical framework of of understanding human flourishing. Um, And so women who want to think about or talk about their sexuality will find things like Fifty Shades of Grey being their authority source because they're not having hearing other women in the church talk about it. So I completely understand what you're saying. I never forget as a as a I lead a training course for young people and uh, I think I, I shared with the group about my own struggles with pornography as a teenager and someone in his early 20s and afterwards uh, just this lovely sweet girl come up to me who's 18 and she said thank you so much for talking about that I really struggle with masturbation and I was just so shocked I was like oh my goodness I wasn't prepared for that uh, as, a young, as a young guy I'm now caught in a room and having uh, a young woman talk to me about her addiction with mast- or her problems with masturbation and it, it blindsided me because I, it just like I said, my experience is talking to young men about this. Um, but so so much of, I mean, you, you're absolutely right. We, you know, we don't talk about female sexuality within churches anywhere near enough. But <laughs> particularly when it comes to attachment stuff, that is often how women get their validation in our culture. It's through looking attractive, looking nice. It's about getting that, getting that gaze, getting that 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 visual kind of affirmation. So for, you know, women with attachment issues, seeking extra validation and attention and attachment, that's one of the easiest ways to get it. Mm. Wow. Uh, I really appreciate the, I mean, I guess with a, with attachment, before something becomes a disorder, there's a scale of recognising the craving for attachment in its, um, in its um, seed form before it becomes a real problem for someone. Because... Uh, and what I appreciate about what you're saying is is a recognition that porn use and sex you and, and having sex is about self-soothing as much as anything else. And my observation, just of how I responded at the start of the first lockdown and the pandemic beginning was, I remember when I heard the news, I was in a I was in a petrol station. I heard the news from my wife on the phone that the schools were going to close, and my first response was to buy beer and chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> And I was like, why have I just done that? I just grabbed it off the shelf and thought... I did... for, for, the ch- for the children, actually. You bought the beer and the chocolate for the children. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, then, but then in the days that followed, I found myself, like, for the first time in years, being tempted to watch porn. And I didn't go there. But I was like, why am I so tempted? And I realised it's because I was scared. I was scared about the uncertainty of reality as the epidemic pandemic yeah. had shown us. And my response was to... How do I comfort myself? And that's yeah. where I think you're, you're right in saying the role of the church and of what we have as resources we have as Christians is to f- seek comfort in the body of Christ and in our identity in Christ. Um, how are some ways that you would um, suggest people do that, find comfort and soothing in, in healthy places? So I've, you expect me to come up with things other than beer and chocolate now, <laughs> aren't you? <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, you mentioned bubble bath already. I think. <laughs> yeah, bath with rose petals. Um, I, I mean, it's an exercise we do in the group, uh, the recovery groups. And one of the reason we do it in the groups is just, you know, five heads are better than one, just, just kind of being able to kind of brainstorm things. Um, I mean, often people have things that they, they used to do. And so in the introduction, if you remember, I was saying about walking and really discovering kind of where I live. And I'm, I'm spending so much more time out in nature now than I was before, which is absolutely fantastic. And that, that's an incredible way of self-soothing for, for many people if you're able to get out there mm. in nature. Um, it can be reading a book. It can be listening to a podcast. It can be watching a movie. Um, it can be listening to music, playing music, mm. singing worship songs, singing any songs. Um, but I think w what I say to people trying to get into recovery is that you, you almost need to see this as kind of a, um, it's like putting together a fire drill. You need to have a, a, a kind of a, um, a sort of basket of techniques ready for if you're triggered. There's no point going and buying a fire extinguisher after your house is burnt down and you get it first you don't wait for there to be triggers and then go right self-soothing um right right mm -hmm. oh darn it what am i going to do you need to have these things lined up ready so what what it can it can be phoning a friend somebody that kind of makes you laugh the, the key thing is that it needs to be something that's going to to kind of distract you that's going to help you to kind of you know feel feel better in some way so it's probably not somebody that you can go oh it's terrible isn't it oh it's awful oh i feel awful. that's not saying there's anything wrong with that that that's good to do that but at the point where you might be triggered and you really need that soothing actually you need something that's going to be a distraction so think about what you used to do think about uh, you know talk to friends what do you do what kind of what kind of things do you do how do you chill out mm. There's nothing wrong with chilling out. I think that's, you know, we, we need to chill out at mm, times. Mm. Um, but find ways and have them ready. Have them kind of in your kit bag for when you need them. Yeah, and I can totally see how key that is to have them ready because obviously once when you're in the throes of temptation and you're battling, you, you enter a state of temporary insanity where <laughs> you are not a rational, reasonable person because your obsession is fixated on the thing that you think is going to bring you what you ultimately want. Yeah. Um, a couple of things I'd love to, to go, uh, the areas I'd like to just go if we can is... Um, I, I've met a lot of people in the last couple of years who are, are in the 12 step program and speak very highly of that. And it seems that every, every new person at the church I, at the moment, someone introduces them as being a friend of Bill's. Um, <laughs> I'm like, okay. Um, Good old Bill. Yeah. Yeah, what are, what are some of the techniques and tools that you use from, from Bill Wilson's book um, on recovery and alcohol addiction or drug addiction in general? And where are some of the areas where you think as christians we perhaps ought to recognize there are some boundaries between um where aa speak goes and where we as christians should go so um i think the, the, the 12 steps are absolutely fantastic and brilliant and they are just um a, a great way of living so i think as general principles they are fantastic um like anything it, it has to be in the right in the right hands you can get some groups that become quite fanatical that become quite close where the doctrines get incredibly legalistic that can happen in churches any group 
can be great, any group can be troublesome. Um, but in, in, as a general principle, I, th I think they're, they're fantastic. Um, so we don't use the 12 steps per se, we're using psychoeducational kind of techniques. I, I guess where I differ with the some people in the 12 steps, but not all, because many would agree, is that I don't, I don't like the, the label of addict, I am an addict. Um, I think you struggle with an addiction. I don't think it should become part of your identity. I am an addict. I find that unhelpful. Um, I think, yeah, you know, I am a child of God. That's fine. That is our identity. I am an addict. God didn't make you an addict. Um, I don't think that is helpful. I understand the principle was all about breaking denial, but I think you can do that by saying, my name's Paula and I struggle with addiction. It's, it, you don't, yeah, I, I don't think that's helpful because potentially it becomes a cognitive distortion for continued relapse. I can't help it. I'm an addict. Um, and I guess the other bit is I, I don't believe the kind of once an addict, always an addict, you're going to struggle with this for the rest of your life. Um, th there are degrees of addiction. Some people are much, very much more at the milder end and actually mm. get a grip pretty quickly, move on mm. and, and, and that's it. Um, other people, it's much more of a struggle because it's more entrenched, mm. um, you know, for sure. Um, but I, you know, I believe in a God of healing, mm. of complete healing, of miraculous healing. You can bring somebody back to life, for goodness sake. It can cure you of your addiction. Yeah, I mean. So I, you know, I have to believe that. What are your... Can yeah. Uh, another question that um, I uh, wrestled with and have in my mind, and it's not as big as the last one, but it maybe it's maybe it's equally <laughs> controversial in the world of addiction. Is there such a thing as an addictive gene? Um, I don't think so. Okay. Because, like you said, I don't think we've discovered it yet. Okay. But people who are addicts say that they are addicts. They were born that way, and they can't help it. Well, okay, so well, that, that's if you go through a medical model of addiction. So there are some people are are biologically predisposed to addiction. So if so, if you look at twin studies, some twin studies, yeah, um, some are more predisposed to um, addiction than, than others. So we kind of know that's a fact. So if you have got addiction in your family, you may be more likely to develop addiction yourself. Um, and we think from twin studies, some of that is kind of genetic rather than um, purely um, learnt behaviour from living with your addict parents, for example. Um, however, so there is the fact whether or not there is a specific genes, as far as I know, never been identified. And also we have this thing called epigenetics. So it's it's not just a case of a gene. There are different kinds of genes. You you have a gene, I believe, for blue eyes. I'm trying to look at I don't know. I think, I think green. Really? Right. Okay. You can't change the color of your eyes. It's not going to happen. Yeah. There's there's nothing genetically you can do to change the color of your eyes. But you might also have a gene um, towards obesity that means you process food in a different way. You can change that one. You can change that from your diet. You may have a gene that is linked to diabetes. You can change that one as well through your diet. Yeah. So there's also epigenetics. The genes are different. They're not all the same. Um, so my understanding is that there isn't a fixed gene that means it's inevitable that you will become an addict oh interesting so just depends on environment as well oh excellent so just as we have neuro neuroplasticity there's also a genetic plasticity for want of a we... effectively yeah okay. yeah it's called epigenetics so we know that genes some genes 
um, are altered by the environment. Depending on what environment you put them in, um, that will change the genes. It's not true for all. You can't change the colour of your eyes. Yeah. There are some that are fixed and there are some that actually are moulded by environment. Oh, excellent. Which is why you can have two kids, or three in your case, bring them up exactly the same and they turn out completely different in terms of character yeah. as, as, as well as in in terms of how they look but in terms of character you put exactly the same thing in but this will come out different. yeah yeah i mean we don't bring ours up the same we've locked one in the cupboard for the first five years <laughs> of his life as an experiment <laughs> that's not true um that's really that's really helpful though and, and i think actually it's, it plays into that the whole discussion about nature and nurture with a lot of things that people exactly. offer there is an interconnection but there's not a fixed state and i, I mean i suppose we're, we're into a wider conversation about sexuality in general um the, the things that i've read and understand and that more and more people are saying that sexuality is a isn't binary. Um, Absolutely, just it's a as continuum. it's a continuum. Just as my um, sexual expressions or desires change over my life, and I suppose as Christians, our our way of seeing things is recognizing we're going to follow this rabbi and put his rule for life on ourselves, his yoke, for want of a better word. And that's not to say that my desires will fit this binary structure, but it's recognizing I'm going to live within his way of calling reality because it's more life giving and fruitful for us. Um, so, so why why do you think that we don't know anything about Jesus's sexuality? He was a man, the same as any other. It's something that the, the the Bible's really seriously sketchy on. So, thirty three years old when he died, he went through adolescence. He had brothers and he went through all of that. Mm. It's something that's just and again, churches don't no don't talk about it there's nothing in the bible i'm not sure i've ever read anything kind of about it but it's it, it doesn't help that there's no information no no you're right on how he did manage desire because if he was a man like any other a human if he was fully human yeah. he would have experienced desire yeah what did you do with that yeah you're right we don't know. no i think we you get the hints don't you he was tempted everywhere as we attempted his um his comments in the Sermon on the Mount seem to indicate that he's talking about lust and and, sec and acting out sexually when he says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Um, there is, but you're right, it's, it's un, um, which for us in a society that's obsessed with sexuality, it's not helpful. <laughs> but I guess it's not just our society's obsessed with sexuality, it's human beings throughout history have always grappled with and wrestled with our sexuality because it's it's such a powerful force that we Absolutely. are often yeah. so scared by and confused by and processed differently um good questions <laughs> a couple of other coming re returning to the practical as we kind of draw our conversation to a close from the the philosophical and theological to the practical <laughs> we've we've done a magical mystery tour of everything here um i'd love to get your comments on advice to help partners of people who are addicted to to pornography which is often something that's very painful when you sit with the spouse of someone who's opened up about their addiction they feel utterly betrayed they wrestle with is this grounds for you know separation and divorce um and understandably there's a lot of heartache and sense of betrayal there so what what would be your advice to people in that position I think, can, can I go in with something else first, Jess, because okay. I realise, and maybe you were going to cover this um, anyway, but I think this is really important to this point, and that is actually how do you know when it is an addiction and when it's not? Because I think that's pretty critical in terms of partners and what partners mm -hmm. may choose to do. Um, so we were saying earlier, just because you look at pornography and you don't think you really should because you're a Christian, it's against your values, that in itself does not make it 
an addiction. Um, it's more likely to be an addiction if um, it's escalating. So you are using more and more and more and more and it's, it's getting more and more kind of hardcore in order to get the same impact. If it is really seriously affecting other areas of your life. Um, I mean, it's also more likely to be an addiction if, I'm, I'm kind of picking numbers out of the sky a bit, but if at each sitting, as it were, at the computer, you're there for more than an hour, hour and a half at a time. Yeah, so if it is purely for sexual satiation, it's probably not an addiction. Okay, so if it is once a week, twice a week for 15, 20 minutes at a time, that's probably not an addiction. So you're going to treat that in quite a different way. It's, 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 it's still not okay if you're a Christian, but you're probably, you would treat that, you would manage that in a different way from its addiction. Mm. So going to alcohol, having two glasses of wine a week is not an alcoholic. But if you are drinking a bottle at a time every single day, then, then certainly is. Unfortunately, we can't purely measure units. So really the hallmarks are escalation that it's more and more and that you are definitely using pornography to escape rather than just, just, rather than for sexual satiation. So I think if your partner is viewing your pornography or has told you they are, the first thing you do need to do um, as, as a couple really is identify, is this a compulsive behavior? Is this really getting out of control? Um, if it is, then I would say to partners, at, at least in the first instance, as long as, as the, you know, the other is keen to get this resolved and is committing to getting into recovery, then do what you can to support that. But whilst you're doing that, you need to look after you as well. So actually, it's really common for partners to feel betrayed, to feel rejected, to feel resentful, to feel upset, to feel hurt, to feel angry, to go through And that's just one day, <laughs> you know, all of these emotions on a regular basis. That's really natural. Um, and get support for yourself. Find people that you can talk to so that you can feel comforted in that. Recognize that they're not doing this because of you. They're doing this because it's an addiction. Mm -hmm. And that really is the critical thing about not taking it personally. This is not about you. This is about them. Mm -hmm. uh, we talk about the three C's to partners. We say you didn't cause it. You can't control it. And you can't cure it. The solution is not to give them as much sex as they want because it's not about sex. It's about the attachment. It's about the other, not having other healthy ways of self-soothing. So don't think that you can fix it. They need to do this journey on their own and you need to look after you. If it's not addiction, that's quite a different story. Or if they refuse to get into recovery, if it is, but they don't want to get help, that's a different issue. Um, but if it's not addiction, then actually <laughs> they need to get their act together. But it's, 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 it's a different way of getting your act together if it's an addiction than if it's not. Mm, that's really helpful. Really helpful. Thank you. Um, Paula, is it, I mean, I've been on your website and seen some of the courses that you've you run and you put on during this um, epidemic as, or pandemic as well. Where would be a great place to point people after this podcast? What would, you know, obviously I would recommend people buy the book, Confronting Porn. Yeah. It's a really helpful resource. But what about some of your online resources? What are some of the things that you're offering at the moment at the Laurel Centre? 
So yeah, we, we do individual therapy. Um, so, so the whole the whole team aren't Christians. We're not a um, so we're not a Christian organisation. We are in as much as I'm at the top of it but we're you know we're not formally a christian organization if you see what i mean um but um about five or six seven of the team are christian so if you want to work with a christian then let us know on the uh, inquiry form and we, we would do that signposting to make sure that happens um so we do the individual therapy couple therapy as well support programs for partners support groups for partners and the recovery courses we do workshops um, the other thing we do um, is, you know, we're a training organisation. So if there's any kind of churches out there listening, teams listening, um, who think it would be useful to have kind of a, a training day on that, we do do specific training days for um, Christian leaders and pastoral carers who kind of really want to understand more about this and how they can support their churches. Um, so, yeah, do get in touch with us about that because that's part of what we do. Um, but you know everybody's different we, we used to do and if we got the numbers we'd do it again we did very specific christian recovery courses so for, for christian people wanting to get into recovery um but uh, yeah that was when it was face to face and it was difficult to get enough people in the same place at the same time but actually mm. that's probably easier mm. again online it's interesting though jess because what i found we used to do these specific christian groups but what I've really enjoyed since we've stopped doing that is, um, so I've run about five of our online courses myself now. So we, lots of people run them, but I run them myself as well. And I think certainly four out of five of them, there's been a Christian in the group. And it's such a powerful witness. Mm. So there's a bit of me that's a little bit torn. Part of me would like to provide, again, just Christian groups because you get that support from other christians in recovery mm. <laughs> we doesn't want to because actually it's such a great opportunity to, to witness to other people so that that's a, yeah it's a bit of a challenge that one uh, i can certainly see that and i think it's fascinating as christians you know we wrestle with addictions and temptations like everybody else i think that's where sometimes we can make the mistake to think that we need a, a different diagnosis for the christian than we do for the non-christian this is a human problem i guess as christians we've got the advantage that we haven't got to discover a power outside of ourselves to help us we've got a power inside ourselves in the holy spirit and if we're in a healthy functioning church we should have some good christian brothers and sisters around us already so we should be geared up like a few yards down the track already um that probably is the thing that makes the difference for for christians in getting free from things like this um i think potentially there's more shame because you've got sin you've got this whole notion of sin so there's there's off there's often more shame and there can be a lot a lot more legalism as, as you were saying but i think it's it's shame that's often is different there, is there always more shame or is there often more guilt more which isn't necessarily unhealthy like what's the difference between guilt and shame and what, where's one good and one bad so i would say shame equals condemnation guilt equals conviction so god convicts us of our sins he doesn't condemn us and shame is when we feel like we are a bad person i'm a bad human being i'm broken i'm worthless i'm useless guilt is i did something wrong mm. and i need to change mm. i think guilt is acknowledgement of sin guilt can actually and there's been some research on this can be a motivator for change i did something wrong i did something bad i need to change it shame is i am bad i am just fundamentally flawed and there's no hope for me 
shame gets in the way of change and I, I for me it's the difference between condemnation and conviction and God doesn't condemn us for our sins he doesn't want us to feel shame but he does want us to feel convicted so that we will change and what's what's the um this might be a strange question but what's the climate of guilt like in the world generally where it feels like over the past 50 60 years there's been a an erosion of the concept of guilt in in general um would you say that christians consciences are more susceptible to guilt or yeah i guess that's my that is my question i'm quite interested when you get a group of people together is there a difference between the sensitivity to which they feel guilt among believers and non-believers so there, ha there has kind of been a bit of research on this specifically linked to um, pornography. Um, I, I, I'd say actually it's the other way around. I think Christians are more susceptible to feeling shame, particularly around sexuality. So there are, and there's, there's, there's been, have been quite a couple of quite big pieces of research on this. Um, Christians are more likely to deem than pornography use as a addiction, as a shameful addiction, than those that aren't and that's not because they use more or because it's escalated or because of anything else other than it's against their faith mm. so they feel shame about it so i think christians are more likely to feel shame around sexuality rather than guilt mm. but where the might be helpful. but where the culture's changed in its um what's sexually acceptable does the non-christian non not feel guilty as much as they perhaps used to about porn use <laughs> they well they have <laughs> this is potentially a circular argument because they would say they have less to feel guilty about i haven't got anything to feel guilty about i would feel guilty if there was anything but i don't think there's anything wrong with it so of course i don't feel guilty so i think that's yeah yeah for different yeah. different reasons it's it's interesting I, th I think it will change i think we we have as a society swung to a place where yeah pornography has become very very widely used but i think it's going to change i think we are our consciences are beginning to change mm. and there are a lot of non-christian people mm. who do not like pornography and are really you know questioning the value of it to society it's not purely a christian thing mm. there's a lot of people that that are mm. yeah so we can trust god's common grace in the world to always yeah. help us when we overcorrect or oversteer in a direction it's really helpful. Paula, this has been a fascinating conversation. I'm really, really grateful for your time. Is there anything else that's just on your mind that you think, I just want to say this before we finish? Or do you... I don't think so. I think the, you know, just want to say again, don't forget women. Don't forget women's struggles in this and young women's struggles in this because they often are forgotten. Um, and I think don't, you know, remember the what if questions. You know, what, what if this were to continue? What if this was to get worse? You know, how would you know when it is a problem? Because I think that's often a, a gentler way of getting in. And I think, you know, we have to remember that with this addiction, unlike any other, if you're a young person and you're drinking alcohol, you're taking drugs, you're gambling, you recognize the side effects. You can see it, your friends start seeing it. You know that it's a problem. Unfortunately, this is quite a hidden one. You can spend hours looking at pornography and no one's going to know the next day. You could tie it, but you can just put that down to anything. Um, and I think recognising how hidden it can be, how easy it is to be hidden is also important. But I think we need to not shame people for it, to, to acknowledge that actually desire is natural, desire is God-given, but we have a responsibility for how we use it. 
um, yeah, and try not to shame. Yeah, I really appreciate it. And thanks for all the work that you are doing. It's, it is, you know, proving a lifeline to so many people. Um, thank, in fact, just this morning, I was texting a friend saying, here, check this book out, check this link out, because I think, as you said, this is such a uh, an epidemic, a problem at epidemic levels. So thank you for your time and talking about it. You're very welcome. It's been fun. <laughs> Well, I hope you found that conversation helpful. And I suppose I just want to reiterate what Paula said at the beginning. The good news is if you're struggling with this, you can be free. Not only do we believe that and know that to be true as Christians, neuroscience is on our side. Where your brain has developed hardwired patterns that have resulted in addiction, it can change. That is good news for those who are addicted, good news for those who are struggling. And it's even more good news for those of us who are Christians, because the reason the Messiah came, the reason Jesus came, he said, was to declare good news to the poor and freedom to the captives. Hallelujah. Wonderful. Well, folks, let me give you a little teaser trailer of the conversation that's going to be released in a couple of weeks' time between myself and David Bennett. Here it is. In that process, um, my heart and mind and will needed to be transformed. And so at the beginning, actually on God's list, the belief about my boyfriend and getting married to him and trying to, you know, wanting to have sex in marriage and not out of it, that was actually not the top thing on God's list to transform. It was actually that I didn't fear the Lord, that I didn't have these other aspects of my Christian walk that needed to be in place before I could then receive God's teaching in a way that would be right and actually not bring me into a place of death, but into a place of life. And only God knew that. It was a really inspiring conversation and I can't wait to bring it to you. But until then, stay safe, keep pursuing Jesus with all your might, and I look forward to being together again soon. God bless. Goodbye.